All right, Miss, the show, no problem. On point and on this podcast, we keep being asked to sacrifice. You know, just do a little more that this winter will be tough, but the summer, it will be much brighter. I mean, is this what we have to look forward to, the never-ending roller coaster of COVID chaos? How about those in charge get their own house in order before asking us to keep making sacrifices? We will dive into the data of how this pandemic's affected wait times in our healthcare system, and it's time for some honesty. Because we have chosen winners and losers, and because all the focus was put on making sure no one gets COVID, thousands got sidelined by long wait times that are now the longest we've ever seen in this country, and they aren't improving anytime soon without major changes to how we deliver health care. We will try to make sense of the dollars and cents announced in the Trudeau government's fiscal update. I mean, the only thing we know is that the budget will never balance itself like the Prime Minister once insisted. So it's pretty obvious that as we deal with surging inflation, soaring cost of living, and a lot of uncertainty, the one certainty of 2022 will be an increase in taxes. StatsCan had to delay releasing inflation numbers today out of concern that thousands of government websites have a pretty major vulnerability that leaves a back door wide open for hackers to get in. I mean, given all the never-ending resource the governments have in this country, and all the hacks of municipalities and healthcare systems we've seen, how are we so vulnerable still in 2021? Let us get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Our government is officially advising Canadians to avoid non-essential travel outside Canada. To those who were planning to travel, I say very clearly, now is not the time to travel. The rapid spread of the Omicron variant on a global scale makes us fear the worst for Canadians that may think of traveling. Traveling Canadians could contract the virus or get stranded abroad. Oh yes, the Omicron Kabuki Theater well underway with yet another Christmas about to be grinched. Hello there, Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, December the 15th. Oh boy, this week. If you thought we were going to go kind of quietly into the holidays, not so much. Not so much. Everyone's out there busy uh, trying to get ready for the holidays. You're just trying to get that like finished work project, get the Christmas cards out, the baskets out, whatever. And now everything we had planned is just getting turned on its head again and always at the 11th hour. Which is going over a well, you know, about as well as like when you buy a brand new pair of sneakers and then step in a pile of dog poop. So how how many more times are we going to be asked to sacrifice because those in charge cannot get their crap together? Like how many? You know, all we're told, we just need to do a little more, you know, better times are ahead. Well, they aren't. Because wave after wave after wave, we keep making the sacrifices, believing that to be true, and then we find ourselves in yet another predictable wave of this virus, which is met with the same predictable patchwork policies at both the provincial and federal level that won't stop Omicron from spreading. It's here. And because third boosters are really only rolling out now, and we don't have widespread access to things like, oh, I don't know, rapid testing in the province, the only option for those in charge is to take away the freedoms that we were told vaccinations would give us, right? Don't forget that. I mean, the only certainty you should count on in this pandemic is that whatever rules being rushed in today are going to change tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And none of it's going to change the fact that we are back to the very same place we were in December 20. 
the exact same place, right? And that was supposed to be the last Christmas we sacrificed, the last holiday we were sacrificing. I don't know if you remember this. It's kind of like yesterday where a bearded Justin Trudeau came out of his little cottage and said, just please do a little more. We all want to try and have as normal a Christmas as possible, even though a normal Christmas is, quite frankly, right out of the question. But what kinds of limits we have in place, what kinds of uh, permissions uh, public health is going to encourage us to have, depends a lot on what we do right now. Hmm. What we do right now. That was November 20th, 2020. And here we are again, being told not to gather with loved ones, no more big gatherings, and don't travel unless it's essential. Okay. What is essential? Like, what is essential to this government may not actually be the same for the rest of the world, right? Because I assure you, there was nothing essential about the prime minister flying off to the climate summit. Yet there he was drinking with all his world leader buddies in a packed bar in Europe. And we're looking at millions of Canadians. We've got millions of people in this country who haven't had a holiday or a break. They have not seen their loved ones since this pandemic started. And so for a lot of people... Missing another Christmas is not okay for someone who may not have a parent that will be around next year. Or maybe you had a baby and your parents haven't met their grandchild. Or, 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 there are just so many scenarios where missing another Christmas is not okay. So do they travel? I mean, is it not essential to see an aging family member you may not see again? Most would say, yeah. But the Trudeau government doesn't advise it. They are not going to stop you from traveling. They just don't advise it. And so the rules today rolled out are, again, confusing and vague for people because many do need it spelled out. Don't travel. Period. You can't go. Period. So people will go. And make no mistake, the case numbers are just going to keep going up. It's very clear this variant spreads quickly. So if the Trudeau government needs to be seen doing something, they're going to keep adding more travel restrictions, even if it comes at your expense. That is what you need to read between the lines today, that if you travel, you do so at your own work, a risk. You could be facing travel bans on the way back, and you may not get it. Who knows? But why stop travel now? I mean, the, the variant's here. <laughs> so what, what does this help? What does it change? Nothing. And unlike Christmas 2020, when you look back to that dark time, here we are in a country where 77% of us are double vaccinated. In Ontario, we have huge numbers of people that are double vaccinated. So for all this talk that vaccines are the ticket out of this thing, rewrite those talking points. Because we heard them, you know, the first shot's the best shot. But now we need three shots. Israel is now starting its fourth shot. I'd love to know how many shots will we need to have a life for, I don't know, let's aim for Christmas 2022. How many shots do we need to have a normal Christmas 2022? Can they start working on that now? Or can someone in charge just admit, look, the vaccines offer protection, but they are not a ticket out of this thing. And so what is? I have no idea. Those in charge can't say. I mean, according to the health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, we just have to make more sacrifices. I know we are all tired of this pandemic, 
but I must call on the solidarity of all Canadians. Our governments do have a role to play, but as citizens, we also, one, we also have one to play, part of our individual responsibility. Right. Okay. He's got a point. People do have to do their part. Wash your hands, wear your mask, whatever. Do your part. But so do those in charge. And all we've seen so far is them do the same thing over and over and over again, and they hope for a different result, and we get the same result, right? Which is why a lot of people just don't trust what they're being told and are far less willing to make the sacrifices we are being asked to do again, right? Hard just to keep doing a little more when we have done so much. And instead of asking us to continually sacrifice, why don't the leaders in charge deliver the tools we need ahead of time so that we can avoid all these useless draconian restrictions? Because we paid billions for all these extra vaccine booster shots. And today it's good news, but the province is going to ramp up booster shots for those 18 and up. And you won't have to wait any longer for the full six months. That is good. It should have been done weeks ago. Where are the rapid tests? Well, if you've got 40 bucks and a business license, you can head off to shoppers and get them. Otherwise, they're very hard to find. And the premier coming out today saying that they will be doing blitzes and giving out rapid tests. So go to the liquor store, go to these places that they've put up. But in less than two weeks, we're going to have none. They're waiting for the Trudeau government to deliver millions of rapid testing that won't come in until, I don't know, sometime after Christmas. So we've got the contracts. We just don't have, you know, the rapid testing shots here on the ground. I don't know how this happens. Why aren't they already here, ready to go? You need them, here they go. Like, the government at the federal level just has to get them here. They had all summer. So why are we now waiting for them? How does it happen where... We don't have field hospitals. You know, we paid SNC 150 million bucks to build five field hospitals to ease hospital capacities. Why are we still, you know, worrying about burdening hospitals when it's very clear nothing has been done to build the extra capacity or change the way health delivery is done to make sure that infectious COVID patients are kept and treated separately so that we can have other people go in and get health services they need? That we have none of these measures in place two years later, I mean, tells us that those in charge have no interest in ever actually taking charge until, until they absolutely have to. So, yeah, we'll make sacrifices, but that we keep being asked to do just a little bit more with the promise that better times are ahead and then they never come is simply BS. I cannot polish this turd for you any better. The University Health Network in Ontario, where they noted it was between 30 and 40 cases where they believed that cardiac patients had passed away because they didn't get their treatment in time. We've seen anecdotes from different parts of the country where governments have acknowledged that there are patients that are dying for procedures which could have potentially saved their lives. And they also noted that in over three quarters of those cases, the patients had waited longer than the target time. All right, great to have you here back with us on this Wednesday. So, you know, without question, we have picked winners and losers in this pandemic. And, of course, the focus has always been to make sure people don't get the virus, which means we push aside those with other health concerns. And you might recall at the start of the pandemic, elective surgeries were shut down, but also, got you know, getting the bump were diagnostic tests, so MRIs, mammograms colonoscopies. And there's a pretty staggering data coming out of the Ontario Medical Association. From March 2020 to September 21, a staggering 20 million 
medical procedures were missed. Almost 560,000 fewer elective surgeries were done over the first 16 months of 2019 in the province of Ontario. And people died because of these delays. And now here we are two years into this clown show and data reveals that wait times across Canada have been stretched to 25 and a half weeks. That's almost six months more that we are waiting for needed care. That's 175% higher than when the Fraser Institute began tracking medical wait times back in 1993. And the good news is Ontario has the shortest wait times, but that is nothing to brag about because they're still way too long. Let me bring in one of the authors of this report, Bacchus Baru, who is the director of the Fraser Institute Centre for Health Policy Studies. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. You know, it's it's pretty staggering um, when we get excited that Ontario's, you know, the, the leader of this wait time, but, but we're still talking months longer than we were waiting before. And back then, we shouldn't have been tolerant of these wait times. You're right. You know, um, across Canada, we've seen wait times dramatically increase over the last two years. Uh, the wait time that we measured this year, as you mentioned, at 25.6 weeks between referral to treatment is the longest wait time that we've ever measured in Canada. And we've been at this for 30 years. By contrast, in 1993, when we first measured waiting times, um, the, the Canadian wait time was 9.3 weeks. Ontario has traditionally always uh, fared better than most of the other Canadian provinces uh, when it comes to wait times within Canada. Um, usually ranking between first to third in terms of wait times. That's the case this this time too. Um, but we have to remember that this is in a country that has some of the longest wait times in the world. So whereas Ontario is the top performer in Canada, the wait time is actually 18.5 weeks in Ontario. That's twice as long as Ontarians were waiting in 1993. And it's about two weeks longer than they were waiting on average um, since 2019. And of course, we have to remember that this is, you know, a, um, a median um, wait time, which means that 50% of the patients are waiting less, but 50% of the patients are actually waiting longer as well. And this is really just based on whatever information that we can gather from physicians. Um, right. So, yeah, very troubling statistics, um, I think, for, for us right now. I mean, COVID, COVID is obviously our top priority, but the data is clearly showing that non-COVID patients are facing very severe challenges um, for their medical care. Yeah, I mean, I was just reading a report the other day that knee surgeries in the province of Ontario can be up to 30 months of wait times. And, and people might think, well, okay, it's a knee surgery. You can live with a bad knee. You can't live with that kind of chronic pain. I mean, it, it is enough to, it, that that leads to things like opiate addictions or, you know, drastic measures because those chronic pain issues that start in the knee end up moving into your, into your joints or your back. I mean, it, it's a small thing, but it can lead to a lot of bigger health issues down the line. But that is just a crazy amount of time that people are waiting given the amount of money we all know that we pay into the system, which... Uh, studies from your group have shown uh, we pay about fifteen dollars to $16,000 for a family of four to get medical care that we just can't get access to. That's right. You know, um, with all the orthopedic surgery um, in our survey, we measured the total wait time at about 27 weeks uh, in Ontario. Again, that's better than the Canadian average of 46. But both of these wait times are clearly far above what physicians consider to be clinically reasonable. Um, and you're right. We have to remember that wait times are not just benign inconveniences that should be brushed aside. These can and do have impacts on the patients who are waiting for care. Um, they can result in pain and suffering. Uh, they mm -hmm. can result in worse medical outcomes while you're waiting for care because, you know, a potentially treatable condition might become a, a, a more permanent and debilitating disease in the future. And the worst cases, you actually might have mortality on the waiting list as well. And in fact, um, an organization named um, SecondStreet.org just actually filed yeah. a number of freedom of information reports 
um, that showed for whatever data they could gather um, that there are actually quite uh, a number of, of patients who have died on waiting lists. I believe it was about um, 11,000, uh, 11,000. Yeah. 11,000 total in terms of surgeries and diagnostic scans, and then about 2,500 just for surgeries. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable, and this is just based on whatever information that they could scrape, which likely means it's actually an underestimate of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, because we're only looking at small windows. We got the AG report that that talked about certain windows of, of people not getting treatment. But to their report, um, and we'll be chatting with them tomorrow, I mean, 11,000 people uh, we've chosen. That's a choice that, that the province has made of who lived and who died. So we very much do make choices. Uh, and we have chosen, I guess, that COVID patients are more um, important. And, you know, you look at Ontario, the province has poured in $320 million to clear up the backlog. So doctors are now coming in on weekends to try to get these surgeries caught up. But even if the doctors work 120% more, so they double what their working hours, hours are now, there's still going to be huge delays. The problem, Alex, is that um, while every single country around the world is is grappling with, with COVID-related challenges, Canada is in, in a particularly vulnerable position because we actually started from um, a point of great weakness in terms of our wait times. Um, when we look at 2019, because you know we have this data going back, patients were already waiting 20.9 weeks across Canada for for treatment. So yes, wait times have gone up um, over the last two years to 25.6 weeks, and these backlogs have exacerbated, but are not the mm-hmm. cause of Canada's healthcare problems. So I think it's important for mm-hmm. us that in context that this is a, a, a new novel problem that we've been dealing with for the last few years. Uh, but really, we put ourselves in a very precarious position over the last 20 years where we've been routinely operating number of hospitals either at or over capacity. We have some of the fewest physicians per capita. We have some of the fewest, fewest beds per capita amongst mm-hmm. universal healthcare countries. And then all you need is something like um, this current pandemic to really push it over the edge. And that's exactly what we're seeing problem is also that we have no one in charge who will actually lead on this issue because politicians are too scared to talk about the solution uh, in healthcare, which actually has to talk about privatizing some services, overhauling how we deliver money and funding to to hospitals. We've talked about this before. Stop just handing checks over to hospitals. Make sure they are accounting um, for what they're delivering. Uh, There's just no conversation on fixing what we all know is broken in this wonderful universal Medicare uh, and until that conversation is had, this is just going to get worse. That's right. We've we've really, I would say, boxed ourselves in in terms of the options we have at our disposal, and that's because we are stubbornly attached to um, the way that we think, or Canadians think, or the policymakers have thought um, that universal right. health needs to be delivered. But that is not the model that is generally followed by other countries. All, I mean, most of the countries around the world, when you look at Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, the Netherlands, Australia, France, mm-hmm. they all follow very different policies. They understand that the, that the private sector can and should be used as a partner uh, whenever they can in order to deliver on that universal health care goal. At the very least, it should be offered as a pressure valve. So if the public system is mm-hmm. not able to deliver services, as we're clearly seeing, that patients have some recourse for other options other than having to cross the country's borders in order to get treatment. Uh, co-payments and co-insurance payments are, are, are an important part of, of helping people understand the scarcity of resources and, and tempering demand. And um, hospitals need to be funded based on activities so that rather than them worrying about every patient coming in and eating into their budgets, they are in a situation where when a patient comes in, they actually get extra funding for that particular patient on an ongoing basis. So these are just, you know, remarkably different policies that 
um, other universal healthcare countries have followed for a number of years. And while it may not, you know, uh, completely uh, negate the challenges that they're facing right now with with COVID-19, they were all starting from a much better point than Canada was. And when this pandemic is through, they will likely go back to a much better normal than Canada will as well. Stay tuned. Lord knows it's going to get uh, it's going to get worse. I'd say it's going to get worse before it gets better, but it just continually gets worse and just never uh, gets better. So we've talked about it before. We'll continue talking about it. Uh, Bacchus, I very much appreciate your time on this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. That's Bacchus Abarua, who is one of the authors of this particular health report. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised, but we should be very disgusted. Budgets don't balance themselves. Imagine that. Justin Trudeau thought that would happen. It is not going to happen. And uh, someone is, in fact, going to have to pay for all the head-exploding numbers laid out in Tuesday's fiscal update. In fact, I'm convinced now that they make these things so confusing that you can never actually get your head around the reality facing us. And the reality is we've got a government that likes to spend and has been spending far, far longer than just this pandemic. Remember, this is a government that just before the pandemic hit was like $29 billion in deficit. They were nowhere near balancing the books and then they just kind of lumped on a whole bunch more uh, during the pandemic. And of course, they've made major multi-billion dollar promises and now they're dealing with inflation that continues to surge, trade issues with our next door neighbor, a variant that again threatens to toss the economy back on on its head. So we are drowning in $1.2 trillion in debt. We've got this massive $345 billion deficit we've got to service. How are we going to pay for this? Well, we are going to pay for this. As my next guest writes in the National Post, we are spending too much, don't have enough revenue coming in, and 2022 will bring in new taxes. Tasha Kierden is the author of this piece, a principal over at Navigator Limited and a columnist with The Post. Good to have you. Oh, nice to be here, Alex. It's impossible to think that taxes won't come in. They will not be called taxes. They'll be called a revenue tool or a carbon price or a fee. I don't know what they'll come up with, but it will be a tax and and it will just be named something else. Yeah. Um, this is the thing with this that frustrated me so much with this update because it was all about spend, 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 and there was nothing on the revenue side. And we know that at some point you've got to pay the piper and that money has got to come from somewhere. So it's going to come from taxes on either individuals or corporations, or a combination of that. The number of options, of course, the Liberals have, uh, possibly, in, uh, you know, in their sites. Um, but they didn't talk about any of it this time. But I'm sure that somehow in the budget next year, this will start creeping in. Yeah, I mean, the one revenue stream, well, there's two revenue streams they've got going for them, but it goes against uh, uh, the rest of us. But they've, they've got the revenue coming in from inflation because it drives up the price on the Coke you buy or the chocolate bar you buy. And then, of course, you t- get taxed more and that all goes into government coffers. But you yourself or we are all being hurt by that. But they also are making revenue off of very, very hot oil prices, which is uh, ironic for a government that does not like oil. Uh, there's your revenue stream. Um, and, you know, they should take advantage of it. The question is, you know, will they? But that, but they sure like it when they need to pad their books. Yeah, they sure do. And that is ironic. And that's one of the reasons that the deficit's actually lower this year than anticipated. It was supposed to clock in at $155 billion, so 144 What a bargain! Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's a silver lining to those higher prices for the government anyway. But, of course, um, that's not going to be enough. So, really, the question is, who do they have in their sights? And, like I said, it's a mix of possible possibilities. Um, the rich are, as I say, always a very popular target. And we know that um, mm-hmm. uh, people in Canada, Canadians are, you know, uh, we're got a bit of a tall poppy syndrome. And uh, apparently 89% of us want to see the ultra rich 
pay a wealth tax of 1%. This was the NDP's it will do nothing. during the last election. And, uh, yeah, yeah, but it does, I mean, it does nothing. No, it does not. Well, it not only does it do nothing, but the point is, um, you know, these ultra rich that they're talking about, it's a very, very few people. It's 160,000 mm-hmm. families in the top 1%. Um, and uh, those people can also vote, too, with their feet to leave mm-hmm. um, or restructure their affairs. Uh, so it's no guarantee. Um, but it looks, you know, it, it sort of looks good on paper. But I don't think they're necessarily going to go there. Um, I do think they're going to go to corporations. And they've already mentioned that. And the question is, which ones? I think the big banks are very, very nervous. They've been speaking out against the possibility of a tax hike, but I think that's where they're going to go. Or um, they could bring a, cap- a capital gains tax on on homes, which um, has been yeah. mumbled and talked about. And there's a lot of smoke around this. And where there is smoke, there is fire. I and mean, I was just listening to a recent interview by the person heading CHM, uh, CHMC, um, and, and they're all about the capital gains tax. They like this. But but again, you know, any notion of taxing the middle class on their, their only investment, and if you're in the private sector, it's probably your only retirement, will not fly in any capacity. It's, it's not like a one-time thing. It's just if we allow this to creep in, we're in big trouble. Yeah, and I don't think that um, that's going to happen for that exact reason. It's, this is cuts across all demographics, middle class, lower middle class, upper middle class. Um, that's, in fact, the biggest bulk of people, you said, who see their home as their nest egg. You start taxing that when they sell it, they are never going to vote for you again. Um, the other piece, too, is that, you know, it's, if the idea is, oh, this would cool the housing market. Well, no, what it's going to do is people mm-hmm. aren't going to sell, right, which is worse. You're yeah. going to create a situation where there's no incentive to sell your home. So uh, you're not there's going to be fewer homes in the market and that's going to drive up price. So it would be a very, very stupid idea. Well, it would be, but nothing is um, out of bounds for any government these days. But, you know, there was nothing in this particular um, fiscal update. And, and yes, it will change by the minute with the given circumstances that we're living in, but nothing to address cost of living, whether it's yeah. foodflation, whether it's to get affordable housing, which is a great talking point, but you can't build affordable housing in five minutes. And all we ever do is talk about it. We don't actually build it. It's going to take uh, probably a decade to get the kind of supply that we need. So there's nothing to address or actually make affordability top of mind. Um, so the talking points don't match the actuality here in the real world. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because we know that affordability is the number one issue for Canadians right now. It's due to inflation. It's due to house prices. Um, those are the two things. And also precarity for people who were thrown out of work by the pandemic. Um, we know a lot of people actually did quite well in the pandemic, and now they're actually negotiating mm-hmm. higher salaries. They're you know moving around, sh- jumping ship from what company they're at to somewhere else. And the great quit is happening. And But that's not everybody. There are a lot of people who aren't sharing in that, and they are really having mm-hmm. a hard time. Housing affordability, though, is interesting because that is actually tied to one of the taxes that I mentioned earlier, um, a 3% tax on bank profits as well as on insurance companies. And the government, the Liberals did say in the election that they wanted to tie that to some kind of housing relief. Uh, how they could do that, I don't know. Mm. Um, but the big banks are already saying, like, you know, that's really actually a bad idea. It'll make our sector less competitive internationally. Um, and it doesn't, mm. you know, the banks didn't make out like bandits during the pandemic. In fact, um, their overall profit for the last three years was uh, 5%. And that's because at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people went under, defaulted on loans, mm-hmm. couldn't take back. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, so they're not the big profiteers everyone makes them out to be. There is something that could be done, not maybe at the federal level, but certainly provincially and municipality, uh, municipally, 
if they want to make affordable housing, take away the land transfer tax. I mean, this, this, <laughs> this massive amount of, I know, well, you know, it's a massive amount of a down payment, yeah. especially for a first time buyer. That's a, you know, if you're paying two of them, you're paying about a hundred grand just to give some clerk a check so she can release the house. It is such a cash grab and, and it really does kill a, a down payment for someone trying to get into the market. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this, um, you know, Toronto taxes though, this is the thing. Toronto has the land transfer tax, but its property taxes are about half of what you pay um, in, a, in a place like Whitby or Mississauga or, you know, in the... Sure, but their cost of living is way higher here. You, know, what, you pay 20 is, bucks for parking here, five bucks for parking there, you know. Yeah, that, that is true. That is true. But the point is that for services that you get, municipal services, which you ostensibly pay your taxes for, um, you know, you, you're getting the same thing, but it's a lot cheaper in Toronto because of density and because of the, the infrastructure is already there. They don't have to build it out the same way they do in, in newer yeah. areas. But still, um, you know, I agree with the land transfer tax. I think that but that's a big cash grab. That's like the GST. They are never going to take that away because the more prices go up, not. the more money they make. Bad. Of course, of course. They'll just pretend to build houses. But just quickly, <laughs> Tash, what do you think? I mean, it's hard to kind of pinpoint what their biggest challenge is. Is it inflation? Is it this pandemic? Is it supply chains? It's like this perfect storm of crap that just kind of seems to be hitting all at the same time. You know, their biggest challenge is curbing their reflex to spend money every time something goes wrong, because that's all they're doing. These things are not well yeah. thought out. I mean, we know there were a lot of people who defrauded CERB, a lot of people who took advantage of programs, some really egregious stuff, actually, that's, that's come out. Um, and the idea that you just throw money at the problem endlessly and that will make it go away, that liberal idea has got to stop because – all it does is put us deeper into debt. It is not well thought out policy. That's the problem. And we've had this pandemic now for what, almost two years. People should sort of have a sense of how things are going. And there's more than enough anecdotal evidence and also found evidence, like measured evidence to say that CERB has really had a detrimental effect in some areas of the labor market. And the government has done nothing, nothing to think, okay, well, maybe we should do this differently. Maybe we should build incentives in or step up. Per like nothing. It's just like, here's a check. Have a nice day. That is not. Yeah. The wow. 2022 yeah. is going to suck. But nonetheless, oh, no, we'll be here for <laughs> I'm trying to be optimistic, but man, we've got some challenges. Tasha, very much appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alex. Have a great night. That's Tasha Kierden, who writes about this particular issue in her column this week uh, for the National Post. So Stats Canada had to delay its reporting on today's inflation numbers because of a concern that the StatsCan website may be vulnerable to a massive security flaw that's been wreaking havoc on thousands of government websites over the last few days. And the federal government, uh, Quebec's provincial government and the CRA are just a few among the organizations that have had to be temporarily shut down as far as uh, websites. And this is after the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity issued an alert back on December 10th about a recently discovered software vulnerability in a Java-based library, a product uh, that we'll talk about in just a second, but it has a flaw in it that basically leaves the back door open for hackers to get access. And this is not about targeted attacks. It's that the government websites are designed so badly that they are just ripe to be exploited. And we all know cyber attacks aren't new. We have seen a number of attacks on like healthcare systems, municipalities. And so it begs the question in 2021, the government's got resources and money coming out of its ears, yet it's so bad at protecting our most vulnerable, sensitive information. Ed Dubrowski is an executive cyber advisor to a company called FileFlex. He joins us now. Good to have you, Ed. Good evening. 
How does this happen? I mean, if anybody should have the resources to make sure things like our private data, our tax issue, you know, information, all that stuff, our health information, they should be the strongest uh, of them all. And yet continually we hear that government websites at all levels can be easily compromised. Why is this happening? Yeah, so I mean, great question. I think that, um, first of all, we need to remember that every single year, uh, and I'm not exaggerating here, we're looking at tens of thousands of vulnerabilities, weaknesses in the actual software that drives websites, applications, um, anything, and, and anything to do with computers are discovered. Okay. The reason for that is because these pieces of software that we're relying on uh, as, as consumers, as users, employees, business owners, and so on, are very, very sophisticated and very, very complex. For example, one piece of software could actually be comprised of multiple contributing organizations into that piece of software. It's called libraries and then supporting services. Um, application calls and so on and so forth. So not to make it too complex, but really the vulnerability that was discovered is in a very popular uh, web serving application. Web serving application are basically the applications that show us uh, the uh, the website, the web pages that we're so used to uh, to read and enjoy and consume and so on. Um, so this particular vulnerability is what we call a fairly zero day. In other words, it's a very new vulnerability. It just popped out, um, and really this was a vulnerability that uh, threat actors and researchers identified that could potentially be exploited in a manner that allows the website to be completely compromised. When a situation like this happens, um, the government uh, of the world, and it, uh, it's not necessarily just Canada, right, that this is what we need to remember. Uh, the governments are taking certain precautions. They say we need to evaluate potentially our risk associated to this type of vulnerability, and hence uh, we are going to take the precaution of bringing this service, whatever that service is, bring it down and then uh, evaluate. Once we're done, we're going to bring it up or we're going to remediate, put some protection in place to make sure that nothing has happened. Just because the government has brought that website down does not mean that there was an actual attack, successful attack against that particular service. Now, in terms of saying, you know, the government is bad, in terms of protecting our, our assets and so on, there's various opinions, obviously. What we need to remember is that because of the complexity, how many applications and so on are driving all these systems, right, that we rely on, whether it's CRA, whether it's this particular StatCan and so on, websites, uh, it, it, it's impossible for any organization to truly assess everything. They can try and they, they can be very close to, you know, maybe 90% if they're lucky. Uh, but the reality is that it's a heck of a lot more complex than simply, you know, expecting um, the government to kind of mitigate all risk from cybersecurity. All right. And so when we see like a municipality and we have seen several over the last couple of years get, you know, kind of taken uh, hostage by those who hack into the systems and then they've got to pay out uh, Bitcoin or whatever to get their information back. Is that just a reality of life that will never go away? 
It, it is an unfortunate reality. Um, as I, I said, probably in our uh, a few few other instances that we spoke, uh, really cybersecurity is very much a uh, a pandemic, a digital pandemic. Um, many many organizations are getting attacked on a, on, a, on a daily basis. The challenge is to um, really figure out where the investment needs to happen. Is it at the government level? Is it the uh, the uh, entity level, the, the commercial or, or private sector entity, and so on? We need to remember that many organizations just don't have the type of dollars and then figures uh, that they can invest in cybersecurity, and hence it's leaving us vulnerable. Oh, well, yeah, but certainly the federal government has oodles of cash, <laughs> our money in particular, and so you would think that they might have enough resources to, to, to fight against this. So and if I'm kind of looking at this, do the hackers just assume, Ed, that there's a code that can be compromised and it's just they just keep going at it until they get it? Um, sometimes. So they, they, they spent a lot of time trying to research potential vulnerabilities um, and, and, and look for those uh, it, it's kind of like uh, discovering a diamond, right? Uh, there, it's called zero-day vulnerabilities, and everybody's looking for them because um, the bad guys could potentially monetize this on, on, a, on a very, very significant scale, obviously. Mm. Um, but also the good guys are looking for these zero days uh, to identify uh, those type of vulnerabilities and then uh, try and mitigate that before the bad guys discover them, right? So it's kind of like a a battle of of good versus evil in a way, right? Hmm. Well, they get lucky this time because they were proactive in taking these websites down. I just think uh, in this day and age, we would finally combat this, but uh, it is the never-ending challenge of modern times. Ed, appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Have a great day. That is Ed Dubrovsky, who is a cyber advisor and knows all things about the kind of cybersecurity that is out there and why it is not always secure. So there you go. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.